Hey, Pastor Josh here. Thanks so much for watching our videos. If you'd like more information about Legacy City Church, you can go to LegacyCityChurch.com. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell below. God bless you. We are in Matthew chapter 1 in our Bibles, and this is sermon number 2 in the book of Matthew. We are working through a series I have titled, Jesus Worldview. A Jesus worldview. Oh, how we need it more now than ever before. And that is why working through the book of Matthew, we are going to look through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ, his story, and how all of the issues of life really come forth through the story of Jesus. And what better person to look at closely than him and his story from really the beginning of his life all the way till the end of it. We get to see all kinds of things. He talks about all kinds of issues. He preaches on them. He teaches on them. But then also, hidden in the story, we see all kinds of principles and laws and um, commands that Christ has given, that God has given, and the people in the story are living out and walking in, and we get to see that together in our text today. I hope that you have a Jesus worldview at the end of this series. The title of the message today, if you're taking notes, is Pregnant by Someone Else. Pregnant by Someone Else. You may think I'm just being a little funny in that, and I'm trying to. But uh, at the same time, it is actually very accurate in our story today. And it is actually very God-centered in our story today. A lot to cover Last week, uh, we had talked about the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, the genesis of the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, Matthew writes down. as He's writing to the Jews, convincing them of who Christ is, but also the Gentiles, that he is the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And we got to see a bloodline of grace, a bloodline of grace. Yes, if you look at the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see all these sinners in there. You would think that this would be the purest people on the planet outwardly, but we don't see that. We see murderers and prostitutes and those that you wouldn't necessarily think would be in the bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ sitting right there in his lineage. It's a bloodline of grace. What are we doing in this story? What are we doing in his bloodline? We're thankful. It's because of his grace and mercy. We jump from the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ into the birth of the Lord Jesus, but Watch this, the birth of the Lord Jesus from a different perspective than you're normally seeing it. Well, what perspective is that? We will look at the birth of the Lord Jesus and really the conception of the Lord Jesus, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, through the eyes of Joseph. Not Mary, but Joseph, Jesus' father, his adopted father. And so here we are in our text. We're going to read verses 18 to 25. If you want to stand for the reading of God's word, you can do so. We always stand for the reading of God's word to pay honor to him and to remember whose word we are reading. Let's allow the word of God to wash over us and minister to us. Let's soak in this story together. Watch the details closely. Let it transform our hearts. It says in verse 18, Now the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. And we thank you for this story. And wow, you were the author of it. 
you and the Lord Jesus were planning this out in eternities past. And you were there in the moment when you, Father, would tell your angel to go down and tell Joseph that Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, you formed Jesus in the womb, the Son of God. And Jesus, you came in the flesh to show us who God the Father is. Lord, we thank you for all these beautiful pictures of what you're doing. We thank you, Lord, that you are working in the midst of tragedy. And by faith, Joseph believed on you and trusted you and did the right thing. Lord, we ask that you would help us to do the right thing. Help us to walk with you. Help us to trust in you. Help us to anchor in you and to take on your view in all of these things. We lift this text into your hands. We pray to transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we have the story of Mary and Joseph before us and what kind of happened in their relationship. We get to see some of their dating. We see that bleed into um, them getting the news that Mary is pregnant and what they had to go through, what they had to walk through. A lot of times we have made this story to be a bit more uh, perfect and beautiful than it really is. And what I mean by that is when we look closely at these details, you'll see that the scenario was not easy at all. We, we, we love to fantasize about the birth of Christ in this, uh, the star over the manger and the cute little, uh, you know, lamb running around and the, and, and Mother Mary there holding baby Jesus and Joseph looking older and the three wise men. We love this idea, but we don't really see and understand the turmoil until we get into the details. And I need you to see this. I need you to see this pregnant by someone else. You got to see this in the text. It says, verse 18, our first verse, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. Matthew telling the story, writing it down. To paint the scene, I want to remove one part of the verse, verse 18, to help us see what is really going on in the text and in that culture. Are you ready? So I'm going to, I'm going to remove one phrase, and if you read along with me, you'll see which one I remove. But just listen as I'm reading it, and you'll see it paint a perfect picture in reality, removing kind of the happy part of the story. Listen. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, before they came together, she was found to be with child and her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. She was betrothed to Joseph, engaged to him. And she is all of a sudden magically found with child. That would mean that she got pregnant by someone else. And Joseph, being a just man, says, Wait, what? You got I thought we were in love. I thought you loved me. I thought you were for me. I thought that we had a life planned out together. I was really excited. I was building a home for us. Wait, what? You're pregnant by somebody else? You cheated on me? And Joseph's heart sank. And Mary overwhelmed and her parents saying, Mary, what did you do with who? And the town starts to talk and Joseph trying to figure out what to do. Being a just man, he says, okay, um, I'm, I, I got to divorce her. Obviously, I can't stay with an adulterous woman. This isn't going to work. In the Old Testament, we know with Tamar, when she was found to be with child, with by somebody who was not her husband, what did they do? Judah said, bring her out. We're going to stone her. They were going to kill her. This is what the minds of the people would be thinking about Mary. This is what Joseph would be figuring out. I love this woman, but how could you do this to me? All kinds of turmoil and chaos. What if your daughter showed up pregnant, came home, and she didn't know how? She had no idea what had happened yet. This is our story before us. There are two big things going on that we need to see in the culture in order for us to understand how Joseph can be called in the text, notice, Mary's husband. But they're not married yet. So how could he divorce her if they're not married yet, yet he has called her husband? Listen to this. 
Our Kent Hughes breaks it down very nice for us, way better than I ever could. So listen, it says, what's going on here? Two factors are clear. Mary is with child. And consequently, Joseph doesn't want to be with her. What is not clear, however, at least not to some modern readers, is how Joseph can be called Mary's husband when they are not yet married and how they are not yet married, but Joseph can divorce her. The key to solving this, these riddles is grasping the cultural context. Very important. We understand the cultural context. When we get its meaning, we can export that meaning and import it into our culture. This is how we extract from the text. Um, Its meaning is to be imported into our text. It is to be imported into our culture, the 21st century here. It says, at this time and place in history, marriage was held to be. As William Barclay somewhat smugly suggests, for too serious a step to be left uh, left to the dictates of the human heart. Um, you're, you're not to be swayed by emotion, he's saying. As it was for most couples in this culture, Mary and Joseph's parents had likely arranged their marriage. Here's how it worked. First, the father of the two families would engage the couple. This would usually happen in childhood. Second, later in life, this couple would be betrothed. The girl was usually a teenager and the man usually a little older. So to be clear, their betrothal is not the same as our engagement. Rather, betrothal was the nearest step to marriage. It was the process of ratifying the engagement into which the couple had previously entered. During the engagement period, the young couple could break the agreement if she was unwilling to marry the man. So there was a way out for the girl if she didn't want to go through with it. Conversely, the man could break off the engagement if the woman had not kept her virginity or if something had happened, according to our text. But once they entered betrothal, which lasted one year, it was like it was arrangement, engagement, betrothal, one year, and then they were married. Once they entered betrothal, which lasted one year, it was absolutely binding. During that year, although they didn't live together or sleep together, The couple was actually known as husband and wife. This explains why Joseph in our text is called Mary's husband. So he was betrothed to her. They were in that final year before marriage where they're like, okay, this is real. We went through the engagement process. We are fully committed to one another. We've decided we want to go through with the marriage. We're not breaking this off. And now they're in the middle of the year process and boom, Mary pops up pregnant in the middle of it. Joseph must have been thinking, what? Like, why didn't, come on, like our parents arranged the marriage. When in the engagement phase, you could have just said, I don't like Joseph. I don't want to be with him, but we're in the middle of this and you do this right now. You see the tension in our text. What if this happened in our day and age? Think about this. You're dating someone, you get engaged with them. You're about to get married. You're a year out from the wedding. Maybe the date set, you're six months out and all of a sudden your girl ends up pregnant. Or the guy gets a girl pregnant on the outside. You'd be like, what? I'm out of here, dude. I'm not marrying you. Forget this. I can't believe you would do this. You understand what's going on here. Pregnant by someone else. But if this happened on our day, you know what would also happen? Probably in LA culture, in our society, abortion would be on the table. You want to know why? A young teenage girl, probably 14 to 16 Mary was, Pregnant, freshman, sophomore year in high school. Pregnant out of wedlock. An unwanted child for sure. Surprise, you're pregnant. What? The parents and those around her would pressure her to just, let's just get rid of this. You know, we don't need to deal with this right now. You, you got your whole life ahead of you. Unwanted child. 14 to 16 years old. A young teen pregnant out of wedlock, all of the recipe for today's abortions. Surprise, you're pregnant. Wait, Lord, Mary would say, I had some dreams and plans for my life that I wanted to do. And I really liked Joseph. And now he wants to break things off because he thinks I cheated on him and the whole town thinks I'm a whore who sleeps around. The Lord's response, I'm sending an angel to you. Plans have changed. The Holy Spirit has blessed you with a child. It's a boy. Gender reveal party with the angel. Yep, it's a boy. Ha ha. 
And he is the Messiah of the world. Sorry you don't get to pick his name either. You will call his name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. He is the Lord's salvation. And he will save his people. Interesting. The whole thing is kind of backwards in our mind now, isn't it? Now that I've told you the real story. Pregnant out of wedlock, a teenager, the town thinks she's a whore. Um, Surprise, it's a boy. Um, Surprise, God is naming the child. You are not. Somebody else is going to name your own child. Mary was for sure keeping this baby, now wasn't she? But think about the turmoil she would go through in her culture, a godly one, Like Tamar, they would have drugged her out and maybe even called her an adulterous woman and wanted to stone her. Second, think about what L.A. culture would do to her and how they would pressure her. Come on, you have your whole life ahead of you. Don't waste it on this baby. You got way too many dreams. You got way too many goals, way too many aspirations. This is going to change your whole life. You don't want that. This is just a mistake. Don't worry. It's just a simple mistake. You messed up. It's okay. Just just go down to the clinic. We'll just do a little procedure and everything will be done. Don't waste your life on this baby. She being a godly woman would never do so. Jesus worldview. What is Jesus worldview on abortion? L.A. would have told Mary to abort Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Absolutely bizarre. You're not financially stable. Nobody's going to take care of the baby. You don't even have a father in the picture. Don't do this. They would convince her. Mary would say, no, no. No, no. I'm keeping the baby. Single mom or not, I'm keeping the baby. Jesus' worldview. What is his view on abortion? Point number one, if you're taking notes, abortion is not God's desire. God does not desire abortion. God does not want abortion. God is not for abortion. He is opposite of that. He is for life. He is for creation. He is for babies coming into the world. He wants to populate the earth, not try to stop the population of the earth. He told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Not uh, put a lid on it, you know, watch things closely. No, he says the opposite. In the world, there are places like China that say you can only have one child or you can only have um, one daughter. They limit how many children you can have, a dictatorship. They're trying to control the population of the world. God would say the opposite. How do we know God is against abortion? Well, let me build the case for you. Let's talk. Grab a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe. Me and you at the table. Let's talk about it. What do you say? A difficult topic in our society. But I don't care. We got to talk about this, man. Let's get all the cards on the table. What do you say? Okay? How do we know God's against it? Jeremiah 1.5 says, God speaking, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations, he told Jeremiah. Before he was even in the womb, God knew him. And it says, God speaking, I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb. I consecrated you. I set you apart with a plan and a mission. Listen to Psalm 139. The psalmist says, verse 13, For you formed my inward parts, O God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You ever seen someone with yarn and crochet sticks or needles knitting away? The psalmist says, God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You ever see a baby develop? Absolute miracle. They go from these little cells to all of a sudden, boom. This little baby, you can literally see when they're this small, you can see a little little eyelids start to show up. The little fingertips start to show up. All, the, the nose all of a sudden forms and all of a sudden a cut breaks out in the, in the lips and a mouth is formed. It's amazing. The psalmist says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret. 
intrinsically woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. All of my days talked about and explored. There is a person in there that God is knitting together with a plan for their lives. Think about how many babies we have aborted on the planet. You know how many scientists and doctors and cures for diseases and amazing people that could have come forth, but we say, no, no, um, we don't want to take care of that child. And so I've kind of got other things I want to do. We have wiped off who knows how many amazing human beings that would be walking on the planet. I got this from Got Questions on Abortion. It's super good, this article. And uh, I actually like their platform. They answer things very well. And they answer some very hard questions. I thought I would read some of that to you. The first argument that always arises against the Christian stance on abortion is, what about cases of rape or incest? As horrible as it would be to become pregnant as a result of rape or incest, is the murder of a baby the answer? Two wrongs don't make a right. We've kind of changed the word from baby to fetus. But here's the thing that I always have a hard time dealing with is at what point, literally, what is the transition of the baby being a fe- from a fetus to a baby? Is it the moment they're born or is it sometime when they're in the womb? Because the crazy thing is that if you look at a child in there at even six months, the child is this big, the size of a cantaloupe. That's a bowling ball there sitting there. And you have this baby and um, we're going to call that a fetus. It's not alive. And if it's prematurely born and they're able to keep it alive, that was a baby all, of, all along. But you carry it to six, seven, eight, nine months. So now in the womb is a fetus and outside of the womb isn't, is a baby. And so that small transition, it's okay to kill prior to, but it's not okay to kill after because now it's a human being. This is very bizarre thinking especially when you look through the eyes of God. I formed you together in the womb. I knit together. I knew all of your days before they were one. It says, as horrible as it would be to become pregnant as a result of rape or incest, is the murder of a baby the answer? Two wrongs don't make a right. The child who is a result of rape incest could be given an adoption to a loving family who isn't able to have children on their own. You know how many families are waiting? They just want a child. And the adoption process is so difficult in this day and age, it's crazy just to get a child in your home. They have to go through all of these steps and they have to pay out tens of thousands of dollars sometimes just to adopt a child. Other ways, it is easier, but you have to get approved for all kinds of things, which I think can be good on one hand, but it is sad that the system makes it so difficult for adoption. Why can't we just give that baby to a family who desires to have that child. Again, the baby is completely innocent and should not be punished for the evil acts of its father. The second argument that usually arises against the Christian stance on abortion is what about when the life of the mother is at risk? Honestly, this is the most difficult question to answer on the issue of abortion. First, let's remember that this issue and situation is the reason behind less than one-tenth of percent of the abortions done today in the world. Again, less than one-tenth of one percent of the abortions done in the world today are because um, the mother is at risk of death. One-tenth of one percent. One-tenth of one percent. This is so small. Second, let's remember that God is a God of miracles. He can preserve the life of a mother and her child despite all the medical odds being against it. Third, even in the one-tenth of one percent of abortions that are done to save the life of the mother, in the vast majority of these cases, an early induced delivery or the ba- of the baby or a C-section is what is necessary, not an abortion. This early inducement may result in the death of the baby, but it is extremely rare that a baby must be actively aborted in order to save the life of a mother. Some doctors say that abortion is never medically necessary to save the life of a mother. We have doctors who are on record saying these things. Ultimately, though, if if the life of the mother is genuinely at risk, a decision like this can only be decided between a woman her doctor, oftentimes the father of the child, and God. 
Any woman facing this extreme difficult situation should pray to the Lord for wisdom as what he would have her to do. But at all odds, we are going the opposite direction. We're not trying to kill off. That, that is not what our culture is doing. 50 million babies aborted. This is not because a mother is at great health risk or because they don't want to put the baby up for adoption. The reason is they don't want to carry a baby. The reason is they don't want it to change their life. The reason is they don't want to go through the process of all the difficulties that are going to come in life. And it is difficult. It is not easy. My wife's pregnant right now and I watch her carry our little boy. It is not easy. You women are stinking heroes. There's no dude on the earth who can say, uh, or do what you are doing, um, be able to say they've done what you are doing. And we are so very thankful for you moms who go through all that you do. And it's not easy to go through pregnancy. And so we, we praise you for it. We bless you for it. But any mom can speak uh, to the gift and the blessing of what a son or daughter is. And of course, I want to be sensitive to all those who want to have babies or um, many of you who are not able to but have adopted, praise God that someone was able to give that child up for adoption so another family could take that child on. Over 98% of the abortions performed today involve women who simply do not want to have the baby. 98%. Less than 2% of abortions are for the reasons of rape, incest, or the mother's life is at risk. These are the facts. Even in these more difficult 2% of instances, abortion should never be the first option. The life of a human being in the womb is worth every effort to allow the child to be born. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abominable to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Is listed there. Hands that shed innocent blood. Who are the innocent? It is those who cannot fight for themselves. We have people in our government right now who support late-term abortion. You can look it up for yourself. I won't list names. I'm not going to bomb anybody in particular. You look up who they are. They support late-term abortion. Wikipedia describes late-term abortion as late as 24 weeks. That is what people are doing in the world right now. 24 weeks is six months. That is the size of the cantaloupe. My wife, Katie, is pregnant at six months right now. 24 weeks. That little baby. I can't even imagine. I have seen him with my own eyes through the ultrasounds. And I've seen him move. I felt him move. I hear him. It is amazing. There's a live baby in there. He's my son. And I am excited to see what the Lord is knitting together and doing in his life. What do you do with that size baby? Six months, 24 weeks. How do you abort a cantaloupe size baby? What do you do with that baby? I'm not going to build out the graphics of that. You figure that out. How do you dispose of this? What do you do? Allow your heart and mind to work through that process. We don't want to because it's difficult. And we know there's something wrong going on there. People say there's no way our culture is going to get there. 24 weeks, there's no way late-term abortion. There's no way. It just came out this week that 94% of Belgian doctors surveyed, support, surveyed they support after-birth abortions for babies with disabilities. 94% of Belgian doctors think that it's okay to abort a baby after they are born because they have disabilities. Everybody's disabled on the planet. Everybody has a problem. We, we diagnose everything in this day and age, and now we're going to find a problem with everything, and we could abort a child after they're born. You know what that means? Kill the child after they're born through lethal injection. This is bizarre. I can't even believe this is happening. In 2012, two medical ethics uh, uh, controversial claimed that doctors should be allowed to end the lives of disabled, even unwanted newborn babies because they are not actual persons. Get out of here. Some of the most brilliant people on the planet have autism or Asperger's or have some type of disability as a child. Some of the most beautiful people on the planet have disabilities. Because of their disability, there's something heightened 
This is ridiculous. When we see the miracle of guys like Nick Vujicic, born with no arms and no legs, they would have aborted him. Now he's speaking all over the world, ministering. They, Nick Vujicic, I love this guy. No arms and no legs. You know what he does? He gets on a plane. And he'll ask the stewardess, hey, can I make an announcement to everybody on the plane? And because he has no arms and no legs, they give him the microphone. They won't do that for me. And then he says, attention, everyone. I have no arms and no legs. And I want to tell you something. Jesus loves you. I love you. Jesus loves you. And I want to know you. There's a God in heaven who loves you and wants you to know him. Thanks so much for letting me share that. I really appreciate it. Do you think they chastised the guy with no arms and no legs who did that? No. He walks into Muslim prisons, walks, he doesn't walk, he rolls in and he laughs about it, into Muslim prisons and preaches and proclaims the gospel to these Muslim prisoners about Jesus because he has no arms, no legs, they let him do it. They don't know what to do with him. The disability has afforded him advantages in the world. How dare we think? God did not knit them together in the womb with a plan and a purpose for their life to do something incredible. The disciples asked, why was that one born blind, Jesus? Why is that one deaf? Why is that one mute? What, what's wrong with them? Why were they born? He says, to bring God glory. The Lord has a plan and he rejects all of these things. There's articles that say New Zealand is rushing to the world's most extreme abortion legalization into law. While the country was in pandemic in March, they voted these things into power. New Zealand MPs have introduced the most extreme abortion law in the world after the abortion legislation bill passed its third reading in Parliament. The bill passed 68 votes to 51, a much narrow margin than the first and second reading. And the new law will mean that New Zealand has the most extreme abortion law in the world. And this will include abortion will now be available on demand for any reason up to birth. On demand for any reason up to birth. Any reason you want. You want an abortion? Okay, let's do it. Up to birth. We're talking at the eight-month mark, the nine-month mark. This is bizarre, and this is the world we live in. What you need to know is killing the innocent is not a new thing. We have just gotten more sophisticated about it. It's a cleaner process, a medical procedure, we call it. History is filled with barbaric cultures, and one of the worst has to be the ancient Canaanites found in the Bible. As was customary in that culture, parents would offer their newborn children as sacrifices to the god Moloch. Most depictions of Moloch include a large metal statue of a man with a bull's head. And usually these statues had outstretched arms to hold the baby sacrifices. During the sacrificial process, the Canaanites would light a fire inside or around the statue to heat up the iron statue as hot as they could. Then they would place their newborns in a red-hot arms of Moloch and watch the children die. During the gruesome event, the Canaanites would play flutes and bang on drums to drown out the sound of their children. It's truly awful, and no wonder God ordered the Israelites to destroy them off the face of the earth and defend the innocent. Rightfully so. A nation doing this to children is crazy. Is Moloch in the Bible? The Bible mentions Moloch, this God, uh, at least 10 times. Here are a couple of the references. In Leviticus 22, it says, Any Israelite or foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Moloch is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. This is how serious God was when he was president. God was president of Israel. These were his laws. Jeremiah 32, 5. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben and Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I never commanded, nor did I it enter my mind that they should do such detestable things and so make Judah sin. God calls this detestable. The parents would want to give up their children to death. This is crazy. I wonder if this culture, once again, if Mary would have been pressured to abort the Son of God, all factors lined up. She was super young, no father, not wanted, not planned, an outcast of society if she shows everyone she's pregnant at such a young age. We know Jesus was put down as illegitimate when he was older. Do you remember? They made fun of him for being uh, the child of a single mother. Who's your father? They mocked him because no one believed he was virgin born. 
And surely Mary and Joseph carried the weight of it in their neighborhood, at the market, in the synagogue. People would whisper about them. And Joseph remained faithful, praise God. And Mary said, you know what? I don't care what people think. He is virgin born. He's my son. He's the son of God. He's Messiah. Praise God. Jesus' worldview would keep the baby. After all, each one he knew before they were born in the womb, they are fearfully and wonderfully made. Each baby is a gift from God, not a burden, which our society tells us. For those who have had an abortion, listen. Remember that the sin of abortion is no less forgivable than any other sin. Through faith in Christ, all sins are forgiven and forgotten by Almighty God. God loves you. And a woman who has had an abortion or a man who has encouraged an abortion or even a doctor who has performed one can all be forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ. He is that good. He is that gracious. The Lord is gracious and ready to forgive. He loves you. He is for you. And He wants to serve you all the days of your life, regardless of what you have done. That is the amazing blessing of our God. He says, I see what you've done. Thank you for acknowledging your sin. Thank you for turning away from it. I forgive you of all of your sin. Now come into relationship with me. Be my daughter. Be my son. Let me bless you all the days of your life. And the first being with a relationship with the God who made you. He is a good king. You can be forgiven. And if you've already called upon him for forgiveness, you are forgiven. Do not carry that burden any longer. Let it go in Jesus' name. Walk in peace. The Lord loves you and the children, the babies, are safe in his arms. Praise God. Praise God for Joseph, a godly man who would not shame Mary. That was a lot in the first verse now, wasn't it? Then we're talking about a Jesus worldview and there's no way I'm going to let that go by. You see the turmoil, you see the chaos, you see the desire for abortion there in that story, it would magically show up in our story, in our culture, no doubt. And so we are going to talk about it. Let's read it again, verse 18, the second part of it. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He couldn't go through with the marriage because it seemed as if she had cheated on him. Joseph had no clue this was from God, and not yet at least. And they were not living together or sleeping together. They were a godly couple. They were blameless in society. And so the right thing to do would be to break off the engagement quietly. After all, Joseph probably thought it was better for Mary to be with the father of her child anyways. He says, I got I to gotta get away from this relationship. He was a just guy. He was trying to abide by the law and be obedient. Joseph didn't know the baby was from the Holy Spirit yet, but he loved her deeply. And he was torn over the situation and um, that he had to break it off. And so he did so quietly. Notice, Joseph didn't blast her. You did what? I'm telling everybody in town that you cheated on me. You're a whore. He didn't do any of that. He didn't want to blast her. Oh, the character of the humble, godly, quiet, obedient Joseph. What a guy. It's interesting to note, you Bible students, that Joseph never speaks a word in the New Testament. Not one. We only see godly actions, no words. Yet his life of godliness speaks loudly. Now, doesn't it? He doesn't blast his wife. He contemplates these things. He wants to put this thing away quietly. He's trying to serve her and serve the law of God, trying to figure it out. Justice and love in the same place. It's beautiful. Verse 20 says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. As he considers these things, I wonder if he was sitting there with his head on his pillow at night and he's even praying to God, like, God, what do I do? I love Mary and I'm having a hard time with this. I just, she's such a godly girl. I have such a hard time seeing that she would all of a sudden just get pregnant by some other guy. What do I do about this? And it says, 
that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. A dream. It's also important to notice that Joseph is called by the angel in the dream, the son of David. What? No one else is called the son of David in the New Testament except the Lord Jesus. But Joseph, his father, is called the son of David. Matthew, the author, is pointing out the legal connection as Joseph being the father of Jesus, Messiah, and his ties being to King David. It's not by mistake. Again, the angel of the Lord shows up in a dream to Joseph, and in his dream, Joseph is called the son of David. Amazing! At just the right time, God sends an angel to visit Joseph, And the plan is revealed. This is from the Holy Spirit. Praise God. He shows up at the perfect time. Joseph is about to divorce and break off the betrothal. He is about to get away completely from Mary and just say, I got to close this thing up and walk away. And all of a sudden, boom, God shows up at just the right time. God is never early. He's never late. He's always right on time. He's not coming early. Sorry. But he's not showing up late. He's always right on time. Right before the divorce, right before the breakup, the angel shows up. The Gospel of Luke points the situation and the scenario out and gives us a little more detail. Luke, the doctor, is writing about the pregnancy. Interesting. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. There it is again. And the virgin's name was Mary. Verse 30 says, And the angel said to her, Mary, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The house of Jacob. Remember Jacob, our story? And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child To be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit, we are told in Luke, is the one who formed Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary. We see this phrase in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. Mary, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to conceive and have a baby and it is the Lord Jesus it is Messiah it is son of the most high the son of God and you will bore the most high amazing point number two if you're taking notes the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus we see the Holy Spirit the character of God God Almighty showing up in our text and We see some of his attributes, what he is up to. What does he do? What does the Holy Spirit do anyways? A lot of people get this confused. In the doctrine of the Trinity, we find that the Holy Spirit's role is to point to God the Father and God the Son. Many times when we think of the Holy Spirit, we think of signs and wonders, miracles, as if that is the most important role of the Holy Spirit, but it is not so. The most important, powerful miracle the Holy Spirit does is raising dead men to life spiritually, giving them the Holy Spirit, giving them a Holy Spirit. Salvation, a relationship with God, all the spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit to the church are to empower a believer to point others to Jesus. No, to do signs and wonders and magic tricks. No, It's to point people to God. That is the whole point of spiritual giftings, miracles, signs, and wonders. A lot of people get so wrapped up in that and healings and miracles and signs and wonders and speaking in tongues and all of the rest. What's the point of all of that? The primary purpose is to point you to Jesus, to point you to God, the Father. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And his greatest miracle is salvation. Listen, John Blankard said, It's the Spirit's ministry to bring the sinner to the Savior. And to make the sinner like the Savior. 
He not only brings forth justification and salvation, he also brings forth sanctification, the process of making us holy. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, who is making me holy and more like Jesus, convicting me over and over. D.L. Moody said, there is no better evangelist in the world than the Holy Spirit. Yes, he wins people to Christ. He points them to Jesus. That is his primary role. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, unless the Spirit of God convinces the judgment and constrains the will of a person, man has no heart to believe in Jesus into eternal life, unless the Spirit of God moves. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits in L.A. to see whether or not they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. How? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God is not from God. Very simple. If Jesus has come from God, this is part of the Spirit of God. If they say he is not from God, it is not from Almighty. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says, So I want you to know, Paul says, that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. No one. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables person to say Jesus is Lord. You can't say it without you can't say it and mean it without the Holy Spirit resurrecting you inside. Jesus is my Lord. I am submitted to the Lord Jesus. He is my God, he is my savior, he is my king. You can't say that and believe it apart from the Holy Spirit filling you, coming upon you. The whole role of the Holy Spirit is to bring people to Jesus Christ. John 16, 7, Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Nevertheless, he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. He talks to his disciples. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So you know what the Holy Spirit's going to come and do? Come and give signs and wonders to the earth. Partially. But Jesus, Lord, what's, what's the Holy Spirit really going to do? What's the helper going to do? He's going to convict the world of sin. That is his purpose. That is what he is going to do because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit is actively convicting people of sin. So when you feel guilty about your sin during a sermon... Pastor Josh, you're convicting me, not me. I don't do that work. The Holy Spirit is convicting you, revealing sin to your heart, making you feel guilty. Why? So you'll cry out to God and ask for forgiveness and connect with Him in deep relationship. Acts 1 verse 8. I quoted it earlier. I'll quote it again. Jesus said to His apostles, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Ju Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What? When the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, boys, listen up. You're going to be my witnesses to all the world. What does a witness do, family? A witness tells the truth about what they have seen and heard. The purpose of the Holy Spirit filling the believer with the power of God is to help them to be a witness of Jesus to the world around them, speaking the truth about Jesus. The, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit has come upon me. I'm going to do signs and wonders. No, no, you're going to be my witness. And you're going to give witness about the truth about me. That's what witnesses do. They stand on the witness stand and they tell the truth to the jury. That is what a witness does, and that is what the filling of the power of the Holy Spirit does. He is once again fulfilling His purpose and empowering you to speak the truth of God's Word in love to the world, convicting the world of sin and bringing them to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, all the way back around full circle, pointing them back to Jesus, pointing them back to God the Father. What is the Holy Spirit doing in our story today? 
He is a part of the incarnation. He is putting the flesh, the God-man, the God-baby, the incarnation, Christ coming down and the Holy Spirit knitting together the womb of the Lord Jesus, pointing once again to him. He is in the fabrication of the human part of the Savior on the earth. I can't explain this perfectly, but man, that is exactly what's going on in our text. The Holy Spirit is the one who formed Jesus in the womb and helped with the incarnation of the Son of God in the flesh, material, a real person. We always think of the Holy Spirit as some spirit floating off in the distance. We would never think of him doing something in the material, but he is bringing forth the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John tells us, the Lord Jesus. Verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You will call him, we already talked about this last week, the Lord is salvation. Because he's going to save his people from their sins. And watch this. Did you notice in verse 21? Look closer. Please zoom in. Get your magnifying glass out. The angel says to Joseph, she will bear a son. It's a boy. And you. The angel Gabriel speaking to Joseph. Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. You. You are the daddy. You are the father. You are to adopt this boy legally. You will name him. Another reference to Joseph being the legal father and the adoption of the baby Jesus as his own. Joseph will name the boy. And right here in his name is the mission of all of history hidden right here. In his name you will call him Jesus The Lord is salvation for he will, he will, he will, he will. Nobody's going to stop him. He will save his people from their sins. It doesn't say Jesus might save his people from their sins. It doesn't say there's an option that it could potentially work out in history. It says he will save his people from their sins. It is planned. It is projected. It's going to happen. Now, there are a lot of people, this gets into deeper doctrine and deeper discussion, but I'll just give you a surface of it. Many people debate about this and whether or not when Jesus was saving people on the cross, there was a, he was creating a potential atonement so that people can be saved. No, no. It's saying that people will be saved. Because if he created a potential that people can be saved, this would say that there would be a potential that no one would be saved because everyone would say no. There would be a potential that Jesus would die and not a single person would say yes to God. Because there's a potential that people can be saved by what he is doing. Or, the text says he's dying because people will be saved. And he is paying an atonement that will cover the sins of people. Let me ask you this question. Did Jesus know who he was dying for when he was on the cross? Did he know who the the people were? You say, well, yes, of course. Then why wouldn't he be making payment for that atonement? Let me ask you this. Would Jesus spend a trillion billion dollars in payment only to redeem about 10 grand? Uh, Jesus paid a trillion billion dollars and only 10 grand of it. The rest of the blood is wasted. The rest of the payment is wasted. I propose to you that when he is on the cross, he knows with his father in heaven who he will save from their sins. It is called his people. He will save his people from their sins. And he is dying with a definite atonement that will actually cover these people. And only God knows who they are. They are the elect. They are the chosen. They are the ones that God has had in mind for eternity's past. They are the remnant on the earth. They are his people. Praise God. That is a much bigger conversation, but I let you scratch the surface And think about that for just a second. Will a single drop of the Lord Jesus' blood be wasted? I would propose to you, absolutely not. When the atonement in the Old Testament was made, when the lamb was slaughtered, that blood of the lamb would cover the nation of people whose faith was in the Lord. 
a perfect atonement for those people. And I would propose to you that Christ has made a perfect atonement for his people as well. Praise God he is doing so. Praise God he has a perfect plan in place. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Why do I get to be one of his people? I don't know. It's grace. I don't know what I'm doing in here. I don't know what you're doing. I definitely don't know what you're doing in here. It's a grace. We're blessed. I want God to save the whole earth. I want God to save everybody. So what is my job? To preach to everybody in the whole world the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then I let the Holy Spirit convict and I let Jesus save. I, my job is to preach, let the Holy Spirit convict, let Jesus save. That's it. Let God's plan go forth. Jesus was born to die for the sins of the world. John 4, 42. They said to the woman, We now believe not only because of your words. We have heard for ourselves and we know that this man truly is the Savior of the world. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation exists in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Nope. Jesus alone. Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to God except through me. Colossians 1.20 says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. He has made peace for us with God through the cross. He was born to die. That was his mission from day one. Before he was even born, the, the angel Gabriel is having conversation about what he will be called because of the plan that he is going to accomplish. Verse 22, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and say, shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Our final point today, God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. This is a gift to the earth from God. This is the gift. The miracle virgin born. This prophecy is one of the greatest in the Bible. It is from Isaiah. Do you remember Larry King, the interviewer? Larry King would do these interviews with all the most famous people on the earth. Larry King said this, that if he got the chance to interview anyone on the earth, he would love to interview Jesus Christ. And this would be the only question he would want to ask him, a single question, were you virgin born? He said this, the answer to this question would change everything for me. Is he virgin born? That says everything. It's a miracle. He clearly is the son of God. All the prophecies in the Old Testament are true. Everything is complete. Larry King, being a Jew, would want to know this. This is the miracle. Isaiah 7, 14 is being quoted here. Verse 13 says, Hear now, o house of David, it is not enough to try the patience of men. Will you try the patience of my God as well? Isaiah says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child, this is Old Testament, and she will give birth to a son, and she will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the embodiment of God with us. Literally, when they looked at him and said, Emmanuel, Jesus, God incarnate, the God-man, the God-baby sitting right there, literally, God with us. God is, when they said his name, God was literally with them in their presence. An amazing picture. He would come forth through a virgin. Of course the Son of God would come through a virgin. The most beautiful miracle. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us, Isaiah speaking again. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. A baby's name is going to be Wonderful Counselor. His name shall be Mighty God. A baby. His name shall be Everlasting Father, a baby. His name shall be Prince of Peace, a baby. God with us, our final point today. Family, I want to remind you, the greatest gift God has ever given to us is that He is with you. God is always with you even when you are alone. He's with you. Even when there's nobody else there to help you, there's nobody else there to take care of you. There's nobody else who understands what you're going through. God is with you. He loves you. He is a father there with his kids. Praise God he is there. 
Psalm 84.10 says, For better is one day in your courts, O God, than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. He said, I'd rather be with you, God, than with any king on the planet. I want to be with my God. Psalm 61.4, Let me dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings, O God. Psalm 27.4, One thing I ask from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple, for He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me on a rock on high. He will protect me. To be with the Lord is heaven, right? Even here on earth, even in the midst of a pandemic, who cares? If I have God, I got everything I need. For him to be with you through everything is the greatest gift in life anybody could ever receive. Even if you're 15 years old, a virgin and pregnant, and the whole city hates you, your parents are mad at you, your boyfriend doesn't know what to do with you, to know that God is with you is the greatest gift. Or if you're a man trying to do the right thing in this culture, to know that God is with you is the greatest gift, brothers. You need God with you on your team. That's all that you need. In your work, you need God. In your family, you need God. In your marriage, you need God. With your friends, you need God. In this culture, you need God. To know God is with you is the only thing that we need. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Through the cross, we are brought close to God forever. Praise God. Deuteronomy 31.6, one of my favorite verses. Listen to this one. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And never means never. God's not going anywhere. He's with you till the end. When we realize God is with us at all times, we have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about because he has everything under control. Verse 24 and 25, and we will close in prayer. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, that was quite a dream, huh? He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph listened to God and obeyed. What an awesome brother. What an awesome man of God. He didn't care what anybody thought in that culture. He, he worried about what God thought. He says, okay. I heard from the Lord. I'm taking her as my wife. Everybody's going to be like, what's wrong with you, Joseph, you idiot? They still didn't believe that he was virgin born. They still believe that she was an adulteress. He says, nope, that's my girl. And God has told me, and I believe it with all of my heart. And I get to be a part of fathering the Messiah, the King of the universe. What a gift. He took his wife, but he didn't sleep with her, the text says. He did everything right. He waited until after she was born, even though he took her as his wife. He waited until after the baby was born before he would consummate the marriage with his wife. What a, what a guy, huh? An amazing guy. And then he called this baby boy Jesus. Yeshua, the Savior of the world. And that is our text today. What a tale, huh? A lot packed into this sermon. I want you to remember that Jesus came to die, to take care of our sin and bring us close into relationship with God. And that is my prayer for you more than ever before, family, that we would draw close to the Lord, pregnant by someone else. It was God doing this work. No one wanted to believe it, but Joseph did. And it afforded him the opportunity to father the Son of God. An incredible story. God is giving us lots of opportunities around us by faith. Would we believe on Him? And regardless of what the culture around you is doing, regardless of their views, would you align your view with Jesus? Align your view with God. Align your view with the Bible. I want to pray that the Lord would help us to do that now. Let's pray as we close. Lord, we thank you for this text and a long story and a lot of work. But Father, I pray 
that you would anchor us even deeper into the ways of you and that these ideas and doctrines and theologies, Lord, would sink into our hearts, that, Holy Spirit, you would make these things very clear to us. I pray for resurrection in the hearts and minds of our church and all who are listening and watching. Lord, I pray that you would bring forgiveness and grace for all of the sin that is represented in our church. Lord, that your atonement would cover us and set us free. And I pray that sin would be forgiven and forgotten and that people would be set free and just start to walk with you through life, loving their God and loving people around them. Please, Lord, we believe on you with all of our hearts in your death, burial, and resurrection. We turn away from sin. We make you Lord and Savior over our lives. We do it now. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you, family. Thank you for tuning in to worship with us today. May the Lord bless you and keep you this week. Would you please continue to pray for us as a church as we look for a place to meet? And would you please go your way, shining the light of Christ in this culture, bringing Him glory as much as you can. Love you, family. God bless you. We'll see you next week.